the bigger question is sort of this abstract notion of, of risk avoidance. And I think you have to have that either. Sometimes we're doing stuff that we hopefully will never need. But if a climate event does happen or something more serious at a macro you know, scale, a global crisis happens that we can contribute to avoiding that has a significant risk mitigation impact that's, that's a little bit harder to capture and materialize, but it's, it's substantial. Welcome to People Who Perform, the Real Estate Careers Podcast. Each episode will bring you conversations from business leaders and up and coming stars in the commercial real estate industry in Canada. Our guests will share their unique career journeys, passions, and advice on what it takes to be successful in this industry. This podcast is brought to you by Highview Partners, connecting people who perform in Canadian real estate. In this episode, I will be connecting you with Jeff Ranson. With a focus on market transformation in the building industry, Jeff has worked for a number of leading organizations over the last 15 years, including the Canada Green Building Council, Building Owners and Managers Association of Toronto, and now Northcrest Developments. Jeff has also participated in a number of public advisory roles, including the Waterfront Design Review Panel and the City of Toronto Climate Advisory Group. His career has included intergovernmental work at the national to provincial to municipal level, and more recently on a hyper-local level, leading sustainability and responsible development for one of the largest master plan communities in North America. Today, we'll shine the spotlight on ESG and decarbonization across Canadian real estate and look at the many ways we can create a lasting impact on our industry. So tell me, how delighted are you that we're not video recording this today? I'm immensely delighted, James. On a Friday morning, and I am still very much in the uh, post-COVID flex work. <laughs> Slightly less than business casual. The same for me as well. Well, look, Jeff, great to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's begin by talking about ESG, buzz acronym of Canadian Real Estate. And it's been given a lot of airtime across the industry in the last few years. And a substantial number of real estate companies are now engaging in the conversation. They're building out their ESG divisions. We've been involved in a surge in hiring across all levels of seniority, both in ESG as well as decarbonization. So it's definitely been very busy times for the Highview team. So my first question to you, should ESG continue to be the buzz or could it be re-engineered in such a way to be more relevant and impactful? Good question. I mean, first of all, I will empathize with you guys on the recruiting side because um, you know, not only is ESG buzzy, it's also still relatively brand new in the grand scheme of things. And so in terms of senior leadership, most of the people I know, my peers and, and colleagues that I know in the space are, are really the first people who have ever had this job. So it's, you know, it's still not really something that you, you can learn. And so finding experienced people coming up through the pipeline is always challenging as we continue to grow this, this skill set. So um, it's been really interesting to see how this whole field of, um, you know, this professional class has really just sort of emerged and is defining itself as we go. But I think as you you know, as, as you can tell, there is demand and there's demand in investing in people and senior leadership to drive this. I think that's indicative of where the market is headed, that this is this is kind of crossed that threshold of going mainstream and sticking. Now, it's still complex and it's still somewhat um, unequally distributed between different building 
you know, categories in different markets. But globally speaking, that's the trend. I think it's going to stick around because it's a very useful tool for, you know, both the investment community for sort of evaluating real estate portfolios in a global context, um, you know, and dealing with a lot of pretty complicated emerging regulatory risks and sort of real tangible environmental and social risks that we largely ignored that maybe I think we're seeing are are coming to reality or coming to fruition a little bit sooner. So so it's still going to be here. Certainly there's room for improvement and innovation. I think one of the biggest things is making sure that you're not spending all of your time on the measurement side of ESG, that you're actually taking action. And, you know, there has been a lot of discussion about, you know, broadly speaking about is ESG really good for the bottom line? And I think that was sort of thrown out there in the early days that if you, you do this, it's it's good for the environment, it's good for people, it's also good for business. I think that's that's sort of true, certainly in an up market when everything's booming, it's a great differentiator. Um, it's a great way to separate yourself from the pack in a tighter market where people are looking at budget cuts. It can be viewed as a cost center. There's always going to be some debate about the value. And I think the value comes down to, are you really being impactful Mm -hmm. Uh, and focusing on that, streamlining the process to make it as efficient to do all of the administrative stuff that's required, driving action and also internalizing ESG. So it's not sort of a layer you're putting over everything, but everybody's more and more familiar with it as part of their regular business practices and operations. Uh, it's not as much of an additional expense, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that there is demand. It is a useful tool. Uh, ESG is important. It's a complex matter and we need to continue moving towards strategic action and moving away from just ticking the checklist. And as you mentioned, streamlining processes is going to be key to innovation. I myself, I've attended a number of panel discussions in the last year and uh, decarbonizing portfolios and achieving those net zero targets were hot topics of conversation. Can you talk about the importance of carbon planning and net zero, Jeff, and how do we go about moving the needle in the right direction? Carbon is probably the biggest issue that we're looking at. And I mean, really, I think it's it's critically important um, you know, if you sort of follow climate science, you know, and not just throw years at like 2030, 2040, 2050. But I think that there's largely consensus that our time for sort of dithering about this is past and that we really need some immediate action. And so for real estate portfolios, you know, buildings last a long time. So the, the things that you're owning, buying, operating, developing today These are assets that are very much going to be part of the low carbon economy that's coming, that needs to come very quickly. And so we need to get out ahead of this because, uh, you know, the economics of decarbonizing a building are really about understanding your capital plans, understanding what do you need to do and when do you need to do it most cost effectively. You know, I think that's, um, you know, it's really important and most of the big firms get it. They're being also pushed, you know, even if they're reluctant, they're now getting pushed by their investors who are really looking at decarbonizing their investment portfolios. They're getting from tenants who are looking to decarbonize their business operations, and they're getting it from regulators. You know, we started in the city of Toronto where I'm located, you know, we have a zero carbon by 2040 goal. You know, 2040 is not very far away. If you've got a building and you're operating, you're operating with mechanical equipment with a 20 
25-year life expectancy. You know, anything you put in your building as of today is going to be there in 2040. So, you know, that's really the big issue. So we got to start thinking about that's the first thing, you know, and we really need to scale up. And and that's kind of, you know, it's been a really exciting couple of years because we've seen in our markets in Toronto and Vancouver, real building projects actually doing significant work on, you know, hitting zero carbon targets that I don't think people really thought was feasible for mainstream commercial properties 10 years ago. It's happened. Things are moving very quickly, but we have a lot of buildings to um, to decarbonize and to get engaged in the conversation of decarbonization. Yeah, it is moving quickly and there's pressure coming from all angles. You know, carbon, it's a big issue. It's critically important. And I agree with you. We need immediate action. Um, you raised some really good points there. So thank you for that. Now, some might say that companies could fall or have fallen into the trap of carbon tunnel vision. Uh, What would you say? Would you say that's the case? I think so. I think, and largely, I I think it's been used as a a metric that is universal. And so that's part of the reason. Again, I think, you know, there's a lot of other performance um, expectations you can put on a property. There's a lot of other impacts, but there's nothing that sort of has the universal nature of carbon. It doesn't really matter where you are in the world. People are talking about carbon. So it's not even as geographically specific. The planet doesn't really care where the carbon comes from. So you've got to think about it. So I think it's having that that sort of common language that's made it you know front and center in most people's thoughts. And it's sort of that critical existential threat. You know, I said there's other things that you can certainly do and other things we should be thinking about. But it's the existential nature of climate change that has people really thinking about this at this scale. You know, there's lots of other things that we could focus on. You know, I certainly think material, you know, materiality and waste is a big issue. And you hear about, you know, plastic pollution, what's being done around that. And, and you know, construction uses a lot of materials. Real estate uh, generates a lot of waste. And we get to think a little bit about that but still relatively a small environmental footprint compared to the collective carbon footprint of real estate. And then, you know, locally, you know, social impacts, things like affordability, well-being, you know, those are really, really important. They just tend to be a little bit more localized. The needs are more specific to the community you're in. So you're not going to see as many sort of large scale conversations about those issues the way you are with carbon. Yeah, you mentioned there that there are many other expectations and impacts beyond climate change, obviously climate change being the big conversation. So what are some of the other important items beyond carbon plans and net zero commitments that we should be addressing within the industry? You know, on the real estate side, you know, carbon's a big thing. Getting your carbon plans in order is huge. Setting targets. A lot of that's fallen on the properties themselves. So I'd say as an industry, you know, one of the interesting things that I've been thinking a little bit about is um, to support scale, there's only so much you can do at the building level. There becomes a little bit of diminishing returns in terms of those investments in energy efficiency and decarbonization. And we really have seen, I think, the commercial real estate industry moving faster than some other parts of our ecosystem. And so the utilities is a really key part of that. We're seeing a lot of buildings move towards electrification as an example to decarbonize, but we really, really need a low carbon electricity grid in order for that to be an effective solution. And that hasn't necessarily been moving in the right direction as quickly as we want it to, or with the sort of level of certainty that if I'm a building owner and I've got to make a choice on what kind of heating system I'm putting in, that I can count that the the grid is going to be clean enough for me to hit my really aggressive carbon targets using grid electricity without having to buy 
you know, additional green energy credits or offsets. Mm -hmm. So utility innovation would be huge. Getting that certainty would save collectively a huge amount of money and effort. I would argue probably it's more effective to spend our money at the utility level. It's a much bigger spend. But if you add up every building, having their deep retrofit every single property they own, you know, that's significant. You know, some of the other things I think in Canada, in particular North America, broadly, the biggest challenge we have are kind of our poorest performance in the real estate space is actually more about land use planning and placemaking. You know, we're still very car oriented. Um, where we put our buildings often will have a bigger carbon impact than what those buildings look like moving forward. That's not something that the real estate community has necessarily thought all that much about. You know, we still see a lot of push towards convenient locations to highway access. That's not particularly great from an environmental perspective. It's not very good from a community perspective as well, or from a quality of life perspective. And then even when we're starting to locate in cities, you know, really making sure that developments are enhancing the community and making a better place to live and to work and attracting people is going to be really important to getting those people back to work, improving the whole economic vitality of the cities where we're locating our businesses in. And so we really need to be additive, um, not just not just sort of picking a neighborhood that has good amenities and building nearby in proximity to that, but actually enhancing enhancing that community in that neighborhood. So I'd love to see a lot more, you know, work. And there we've seen some recent really exciting projects like the well that I think are really doing some interesting work around placemaking. You know, and I think we also need to think about as an industry looking at uh, policy reforms that make it easier, cheaper, faster to build quality buildings and low carbon buildings. And some of that falls into, you know, things like tax reform, you know, figuring out more effective ways to do development charges thinking about property tax reform that recognizes buildings that are actually more beneficial to the community, you know, less impactful, you know, lower carbon footprint. And what can we do around that? You know, so the last big thing that we really need to focus on is affordability. That's both residential affordability and dealing with the housing crisis, you know, but also affordability for small businesses in markets and not just thinking about affordability in terms of rental prices, but total cost of living and what role can real estate play in making life in general more affordable for everybody? There is only so much we can do at the building level. And as you rightly pointed out, there's a lot more we need to look at more broadly speaking, utility innovation, placemaking, policy reforms, and as well as real estate affordability. So you've highlighted some really good points there. Taking those points forward, how do we approach these matters in the right way, Jeff? I think, you know, with some of these big issues, I think you're right. You're, you can only tackle so much. And I think the inclination for pretty much anybody, you tackle the problem that's immediately right in front of you. And the fragmented nature of the real estate industry, I think sometimes makes it hard for us to collectively organize around things that I think are really valuable to us. And there are associations that I think are really important to bringing the community together and organizing around those collective values and pushing for policy change. You know, I think that's really important. I think I think things like affordability need to be need to be handled in partnership with government, with the community and the real estate community actively involved in dialogue. And I also think it, we need to be really clear about what our objectives are, making sure that we are measuring the important things that deliver those outcomes and then really looking hard at policies and processes and business operations to make sure that they're aligned with those things. There's a lot of times where we, we say we want to accomplish something, but the, the systems that we've got in place really aren't 
supportive or indicative of, of those things that we really value. So we do have to look at that alignment. Yeah, it is fragmented and it does make it quite challenging. But as you pointed out, setting clear objectives, having that collective voice and flexibility in the policy programming and business operations could certainly make a difference. Now, let's talk about making our buildings more resilient. What does that mean inside of ESG and how do we go about it? So the resilient side, I think, you know, generally speaking, is looking at the risk profile of real estate. And I think maybe after this summer in Toronto with wildfire smoke is so bad that you couldn't go outside. Maybe it's a little bit more top of mind and, mm-hmm. and obviously in other parts of the country that have had much more direct exposure to things like wildfires. We're very aware of this. And I think it, it is really a material financial risk for real estate to understand the physical risks associated with their geography, whether it's sea level rise, extreme weather or wildfire. And I think we're starting to develop a little bit more sort of robust understanding of what those physical risks are, and then obviously building strategies around around the resilience. Now that means you know physical hardening of the assets to make sure that they are you know they can withstand real physical risks. Having good policies in place and planning for if something does happen, how do you address it in the short term in that crisis mode? but how you get back up to full operating capacity as quickly as possible with this, you know, as little disruption as possible. And the most challenging part of this is sort of what I would classify as a systemic risk management, which is, you know, you've got a building, it's also part of a city or it's part of a, a you know, a province that has its own systems and networks in place. If, if the bigger system goes down, what do you do and how do you mitigate against that? You know, if transportation networks go out, if energy networks go out, what can you do and how do you build in um, resilience against those, those broader impacts that aren't just at the property level? A little bit trickier, some of it means maybe internalizing some functions or backup functions, but also thinking about you know, more operationally, how do you support community resilience more broadly? How do you support, you know, whether it's government or community groups who are going to be responding to events so that you know, you've got a full suite of tools at your disposal? Mm-hmm. When you talked about the bigger systems going down, the first thing that came to mind was the uh, was the Rogers crash of uh, was that twenty twenty two. Yes, having redundant telecommunication systems, if that stuffs go down, or you know, if transportation networks are compromised, what do you do? Can you mm-hmm. can you help your tenants switch to remote work? Maybe not as much of an issue now, but even you know, extreme weather events. Can you offer cooling centers in certain places? You know, there's a lot of interesting innovations that are being done, you know, within real estate to help the broader community, you know, withstand these sort of events and, and minimize community level disruption. Indeed. Now let's talk about financial implications of ESG. Is it safe to say you can make money doing good? Yeah, I think generally, I think so. Um, Again, everything's nuanced in the ESG space. I think that ESG, you are investing in impacts that may not directly be financial impacts. You know, in some cases, you know, energy savings is going to save you money, but a lot more times you're improving an experience or you're delivering some other tangible impact that you've got to indirectly tie back to financial value. So I think that those investments, the first key here is, are you getting better at doing those? Are the costs coming down through experience and through scale and through normalization of those practices? And I think a lot of that's happened. The cost of doing some of these things has come down to the point where it's, you know, cost neutral. It's just typical cost of doing business. Uh, you know, then the inverse of that is, are we doing a better job of communicating the value or capturing the value from these things? And sometimes there's some sophistication to that. But I think that 
you know, really good firms are finding ways to drive real financial value from ESG. The bigger question is sort of this abstract notion of, of risk avoidance. And I think you have to have that either. Sometimes we're doing stuff that we hopefully will never need. But if a climate event does happen or something more serious at a macro you know, scale, a global crisis happens, that we can contribute to avoiding that has a significant risk mitigation impact that's that's a little bit harder to capture and materialize, but it's, it's substantial. And they're going to continue to be debate around that. But as I say, the nuance is that it's not true for all markets. Some markets have a much harder business case based on the way that those, those specific markets are structured. A lot of sustainability or ESG benefits lean towards or, or are more supportive of uh, real estate companies that have long-term skin in the game. They benefit from those upfront investments because they can capture the value over time. They realize the risk reduction over time, harder for short-term markets. And then, you know, in other cases, the ESG impacts that you're delivering are really public benefits more so than they are specific building benefits. And that can be really problematic if it's something that you're doing strictly on a voluntary basis that your competition doesn't necessarily have to deal with. And so if you, you know, in those cases, we would love to see more policy alignment, you know, at a governmental level, pushing for at least sort of universal responsibility, or in the case of real public benefits, you know, the solutions coming as public solutions, not necessarily voluntary private solutions. So, yeah, those those are things that can uh, can be a drag on businesses who are doing stuff way above and beyond, you know, sort of minimum industry requirements. Well, it's great to hear in your opinion that we're getting the cost down through experience and scalability. Flipping the question away from the financial implications into how we invest, do you feel we are investing in ESG in the right way at this time? I mean, I think there's a lot of different approaches that people are taking to in the investment side, and there's still a lot of experimentation going on and people trying to figure that out. And I think that's okay. And and maybe it's good. I think ESG or the impacts we're trying to have, really, it's a complicated problem. So it's, it's probably worth trying many different approaches. The challenge of wicked problems, I think, is often that as it's, it's humans, we sort of look for you know magic bullet solutions, that there's going to be something we figure out one size fit all that works. It makes mm-hmm. everything really easy. And I think it's a little bit naive. I think we're going to have to approach this in a bunch of different ways and to meet the variety of needs from the, you know, the different ownership structures of companies, the different markets that we play in, you know, the different risk profiles and returns. So I think that we're not going to find one simple way to do it. And I won't say there's a, sort of a right way or a wrong way to do it. So where we've been successful is in the market leadership and sort of bigger successful companies who are building pretty sophisticated tools, who have the expertise and the resources to invest in this. And particularly when we talk about investing, and so let's talk like financing, where these long-term investments and things that generate long-term benefits, you know, environmental impacts over time with big upfront capital expenses are really good Uh, or translate really well to patient capital, things like pension funds or large investment companies that are interested in long-term stable returns and and lower risk. They also tend to take really big bites. They like to eat in big chunks. So that works well in some parts of the market. Broadly speaking, we're having trouble in investing in ESG at the lower end of the market, smaller, smaller properties um, outside of major centers, geographically distributed. We haven't really figured out how to do that effectively. It's harder to capture those long-term benefits 
um, it's harder to attract capital in those markets. We don't necessarily have the right tools. So I do think we still need a lot of innovation to sort of take investment in ESG down market to show the value, to create the right kind of tools and programs that aren't too administratively heavy, both for the investors who are trying to evaluate, should I put my money into this? You know, small little projects take a lot of time to evaluate. We need ways to scale up that analytical process, you know, and then for, you know, for these smaller places, just finding, finding investors who, who have product that's accessible to them and with the expertise and resources they have available is going to be a challenge we need to deal with. Yeah, there's definitely many different approaches. And as you said, there's no right or wrong. There's no universal code. It really needs companies to just look at what's going to work for them best in terms of an investment strategy going forward. Are you ready to find the best next hire to join your real estate business? Highview is committed to finding the best talent to fit your hiring needs. Our teams specialize in recruiting across strategic, operational, and corporate roles at all levels, from coordinators, analysts, and operators, to managers, directors, and vice presidents. We have been developing our real estate network for over 30 years, and we actively scout and track emerging talent entering the industry. Our knowledge and experience allow us to engage passive candidates in a highly impactful way, making sure that you are hearing from only the best. To find out more, contact us today or visit us at highviewpartners.ca. Taking the conversation away from the industry, Jeff, and now moving it towards your career path. I understand the primary focus of your career over the last 15 years has been this idea of driving market transformation through innovation and sustainability. How did this become your focus? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not an engineer or an environmental scientist. Uh, so I've, uh, I, you know, I've never been one to sort of focus on the technical solutions to these problems or on things like climate change. Um, you know, my background is well, originally from business school and, uh, and, and later on did a, a master's in design focused on sort of strategic systems change. But, you know, my, my interest in the built environment and in sustainability goes back a very long time. And when I was really interested in getting into the space and having an impact in a meaningful way, not being a sort of technical expert, um, I recognized pretty quickly that even though we have technical solutions or smart people can figure out how to do this stuff, we aren't doing it at scale. You know, we're either too slow to roll stuff out, we're not really capturing all the market. And the question was always like, well, why not? And I think that when you look at these problems, it's because it's a complex systems change problem and these sort of wicked problems cross disciplines. And and so to get groups working together to see that change um, does not happen on its own. And it really needs people and thinking that integrate ideas that find alignment across these silos. And that's kind of the role that I've taken on over the years, you know, working with different nonprofits associations, but really, really just focus on like, you need to have leadership driving change. You need to have people organizing conversations to get people on the same page to show that there's alignment, there's collective movement, that there's interest in these things. And so I think that's, you know, that's always been the piece that's interested me is how all these pieces fit together so that we can actually scale up and achieve the things that we think are technically possible. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly need leadership to drive change. And as you mentioned, there's many moving pieces. Talking about moving pieces and some of the projects that you've been directly involved with, which ones stand out from the pack in terms of accelerating policy and programmatic thinking? Uh, this isn't sort of one program, but a sort of suite of programs, the idea in real estate of benchmarking and in particular sort of energy, water and greenhouse gas benchmarking. I've been involved in many of these sort of iterations of benchmarking across the country from Ontario's EWRB regulation, helping to inform that to uh, Boma Toronto's Race to Reduce program. Uh, you know, consulted with different municipalities on benchmarking programs. And we've seen a lot of this. And again, this is a project that started off with a really sort of simple proposition that can't manage what you don't measure. The first challenge is getting everybody in the real estate community, just capturing data and reporting it so that they can learn important things about how their buildings run and operate. And that could be by comparing it to your peers in a really transparent way when you previously never had access to your peers' performance data, or it could be just comparing your building to your own portfolio or comparing your building to itself over time. But just normalizing that practice of benchmarking has led to a whole suite of more operationally focused improvements that people can make. And that's sort of been the good side in that we've seen that you know just the act of benchmarking over time drives to significant improvements in performance. Um, you know, the bad side, and I'll sort of talk about this, when things sort of fail to roll out effectively because they don't have all the pieces together. We've had voluntary benchmarking that's been pretty effective, but it still hasn't captured the whole market. And so we see certain regions, certain property types that aren't participating, and it creates a bit of a polarized marketplace. So it can be viewed as unfair because you've got some who are doing this extra work to report their energy data and others who don't. You could also look at the inverse where those buildings that aren't reporting are actually falling behind and you're ending up with a two-tiered market where you've got high performance real estate in some places and lower performance real estate in others. And, and that becomes you know, economically even um, a negative overall that these assets, you know, particularly maybe smaller portfolios in rural areas or, or, or smaller towns aren't as good. They're not as valuable. They're losing value in the marketplace. And that's largely because I think we haven't done a good job with the public side of things about rolling these programs out in effective ways and providing the resources for these other groups to participate in this program collectively. It hasn't had that universal appeal. It hasn't had the level of awareness, the level of understanding about what the real value is driving forward. So, you know, so it's had some great wins. It has tons of potential uh, and I think is critically important for underpinning a lot of the future ambitions of the real estate sector. You know, you, you can't really run decarbonization programs if you don't have benchmarking as a sort of standard baseline you, you can measure against. We still haven't got it to the point where it's quick and easy to do and universal and everybody understands what it is. And that with all this great data, we're using it for all the potentially beneficial uses that we could have, um, both for tenants being more aware of what's happening, the public, regulators, and everybody. So, you know, just examples of sort of really complex pieces with lots of moving parts and lots of stakeholders and and how important it is that everybody gets on the same page and works together. Well, congratulations on the benchmarking programs where you've had impact. And as you pointed out, there's just still so much more to be done in terms of raising awareness and generating value out there in the market. If we were to look at transformation, Jeff, in terms of where we were in the market back in 2008 when you joined the industry versus where we are today, 
What would you say have been some of the big wins for the industry as a whole? 2007, 2008 was an interesting time. I mean, I think that's when, when green started to go mainstream, when things like lead really took off. And there were some early, I'd say early big wins, even just around the idea of being public around your environmental performance and things like certification was really important. And those also unlocked some really big successes around things like even simple things like with the mainstreaming of green cleaning practices and low VOC paints and a lot of that was codified in those early rating systems. And those are pretty standard and ubiquitous now, you know, and then more recently, I think there's been a lot of progress on, um, on energy management, uh, things like continuous improvement year over year and making that a regular business practice, not sort of a one, a one time, you know, do an audit, do a retrofit, but, but really managing buildings and improving continuously over time. So we've seen great, tremendous progress in those areas. And then more recently, the transition to greenhouse gas emissions and really understanding those operational emissions and targeting those. And, and as I mentioned earlier, a few real projects, big commercial, privately funded projects hitting zero operational carbon was relatively unheard of in 2008. So those have been you know, huge strides. Some other big areas of progress, which I think are still emerging issues we haven't really figured out. Embodied carbon is buzzing right now, uh, maybe more so on the construction side, but we are really thinking about that in terms of the renovation space and everything around all of the carbon emissions that are produced when we're building a building and the materials that we bring into buildings and that's taking off and the literacy around that is growing in leaps and bounds and now starting to manifest in regulation uh, you know smart buildings and the digital transformation the integration of ai and these kind of systems um, those are also really starting to become uh, really exciting areas uh, so this was definitely future tech when i started um, very much off the radar and now I mean, being rolled out in really interesting uh, ways. Mm, exciting times with many of the strides that we're making out there in the industry. So knowing what we know about the wins and the losses over the past three decades, as companies now look ahead towards 2030 goals and beyond, what do you think should be friends of mind as they begin to navigate the framework for achieving their targets? Probably a few things. Some of the lessons learned, I think, uh, especially when we're looking at sort of these these transformative changes with a long-term horizon, like a, a 2040 or 2050 target to you know decarbonization, it's really important to have clarity of vision, to be really clear on what it is that you're trying to do and what the end point is and figuring out what the the best way to get to that end point is instead of sort of maybe the old way of thinking about it, which is where am I today? And, you know, what can I realistically do over the next two or three years? That doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go. So having that clarity of vision, having a target um, is really important. Uh, one of the big challenges, and I would say that uh, is, is that the landscape around us is still in flux. The policy environment could change depending on who's in government at different levels. A lot of the regulatory stuff, and I mentioned some of the utility um, progress that we were hoping on isn't quite firmed up to the point where you can count on it. So you do have to be very aware that those things are fickle and they can change rapidly and you can't necessarily rely on them entirely uh, to reach that that vision. You've got to be aware of them and nimble and flexible. Um, but saying, you know, I'm going to wait until 
uh, a greenhouse gas target is absolutely codified and certain, maybe too late for when it's economically achievable to to address the emissions in your buildings. Um, so be aware of those fickle items. And then also think about the big external risks that that imposes, the risk if policy mm-hmm. changes more rapidly than you anticipate, or if the market shifts and the investment community shifts. Um, you know, Managing risk is going to be a really key point uh, and a real challenge. Yeah, you raised some really good points there in terms of identifying and clarifying your vision, uh, assessing risk, and also the, the landscape, which is forever changing. Given the work that you did at BOMA Toronto, you had the opportunity to collaborate with numerous property management firms, uh, as well as the Canada Green Building Council, uh, CGBC. What are the characteristics of the better companies or best companies in the market when it comes to ESG? Yeah, I think I think that um, you know one of the one of the pleasures of working for associations for so many years is you get that exposure to all sorts of different companies and are often celebrating the success of companies who are doing really innovative things in the marketplace and taking those leadership positions and 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 have driven a lot of this this change that we now sort of take for granted and so you know a lot of that you know I will always say that you need you need a champion you need leadership this is change management it's doing things in a different way if you don't have the people and the resources to enable that change in really constructive ways, things you know, things tend to move a little bit slowly, and and it's certainly very helpful to have that at the very top of the company. And you see some of the companies out there now who have you know very senior level commitment to this. Um, things can move really really quickly. But I've also seen a lot of companies who have really you know where where individuals have led from the bottom and really started to push and transform. Uh, and help companies navigate this stuff, but that's that's you know critically important. Um, you know, certainly the companies who have invested the resources into this, in terms of personnel and expertise, um, have had a lot of success, uh, which isn't always easy. But also that you're not in it alone; that there's a lot of aligned organizations and and services that are available, whether it's through the utilities, um, the different utility incentive programs and companies that have gotten very good at reaching out to those entities for help and support and using the programs that are available. You know, oftentimes it's municipalities, sometimes it's local environmental organizations, community groups who who's mobilize change. Lots of groups are out there looking to help and support people. So that willingness to partner and collaborate on change, I think, has been really important. You know, and then the last thing I think has been enabled greatly by setting corporate-wide performance targets, where ESG isn't just sort of a single report that lives on its own. It's something you're measured in your evaluation of employees and your financial analysis. You really you really need to integrate these ESG goals into your core business function areas and make it part of the way you operate as a business for it to be effective. I don't think, you know, if ESG is just always a layer that you're putting on top outside of your core business, it's always going to be undervalued and a bit of a drag on the business. Well, Jeff, thanks for walking and talking us through your perspectives around ESG and carbon, more broadly speaking, and then taking us through your career. In this final part of the pod, it's an opportunity to leave our listeners with some advice on how they can make a lasting impact. Um, So let's start with real estate companies, first of all. So for companies who are new to the ESG space, or perhaps have a ESG strategy, but they're feeling overwhelmed by the sheer volume of work that is required, where should they begin or where should they start to look at resetting the clock? 
for sure. I, you know, I, I said earlier, there's no real magic bullet, but I'll, I'll maybe pick on three things that I think are pretty good places to start if you don't know where to begin. The first one is just benchmarking properties. Pick some impact areas that you really want to address that you think are really important to your company, whether it's carbon or energy, you know, utility stuff, or, or whether it's social metrics that you really want to measure and, and just start getting data, figure out what you can learn about your properties. You know, that's always going to be a big starting point to really inform any future analysis that you do. Um, you know, the second thing, and you know, this isn't always the case, but I recommend people chase early wins. Sometimes there's a tendency to look at where's the biggest problem that I can solve. You know, what, what's the worst performing building I have where there's the biggest opportunity for improvement. But oftentimes it's, it's a really hard project. And I've, I've learned from a few of my colleagues who have had some really big wins that sometimes, especially when you've got to get buy-in at high levels, pick some early wins just to show it's possible, get people on board and understanding what it is you're talking about without trying to tackle the absolute biggest problem you've got can be really important to, to getting that momentum and support. So don't make your life harder on you than it needs to be uh, at the get-go. You know, and then I would say partner with the right people. If you're new to this, there is a lot of expertise out there. Um, there are some great consulting firms. So dig around, talk to your colleagues, find out who people are really happy with and, and have been doing really good work because there's a ton of good ideas. And the cost of all this stuff, it's, it's not just technical proficiency, but the proficiency in integrating this thinking into different business models and into your regular business operations is really important. Um, it can be a really painful process with the wrong partners and the wrong team, or it can be a really, um, a really enlightening process. So do your due diligence, find the right people, um, be picky, but put together a good team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great advice there for real estate companies, whether you're seasoned or whether you're new to the table. Now, for those who are near the sunset of their career, wanting to leave their legacy and a lasting impression, can you make some suggestions as to what they should take on and what would be most impactful for the next generation of real estate leaders? Amazing things about ESG and the rise of ESG is it provides this really unique opportunity to create a legacy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for, for a lot of senior leadership, you know, this is still a really new area and they might be trying to, you know, really trying to understand the impact that they can have. And, and so firstly, I think, you know, if you're part of the, the older generation who was doing something one way for 20 or 30 years, you know, this is not to criticize what you did or what you were trying to do, but it's also very important to recognize that life is a lot different for younger people. The things that they're worried about, the values they have, the issues around things like affordability. I mean, the culture has changed quite a bit. So I think the first thing is, you know, spend some time talking to your young team members or, or even younger people who might not be working with you to really understand what life's about for them and, and how their job and how this business impacts them in their daily lives. I think grounding in that, I mean, is going to be really important to understand what it is that you are in fact leaving behind. Um, and it's going to be a, like, it's going to be a really big shift and things are going to continue to change radically. And I guess one of the biggest risks is trying to cling on to this world that's very familiar to us you know, may seem like we're doing a real service to people and protecting the way things have always been. But in reality, there's some stuff I think that a lot of young people feel needs to change. And so I, I think it behooves you to really understand what that looks like and be a part of that change and, and, and pass the next generation off the things that they want, not the things that sort of nostalgia tells you, you know, would be valued by that group. So that would be my first starting point. 
Mm, yeah, some very valid points there, not just holding on to the past, but really looking at the next generation and understanding the way that they think and they operate and what is really going to work well for them moving forward. So great advice for the sunsetters and looking at those that are more towards the sunrise of their career. And this brings us to our last question. So before we wrap up, I just want to say a big thank you for joining us on the People Who Perform podcast. It's been you know, great to get your wisdom and your perspective and from your experience in the industry. And uh, that brings us to the last question of the day, which is for the leaders of tomorrow, what food for thought would you give to our future leaders in the ESG space? Always one of my favorite things to discuss. And, and I think one of my favorite things about the position I've had is a chance to talk to lots of young people who kind of want to figure out how to get into this space. They want to have an impact in their work. They want their work to align with their values and they don't really know where to start or what, you know, and usually the question is phrased in some context of like, what's the most important thing to do? Because they see these big problems and they see them as being, you know, critical to solve, but super complicated and really hard to get oriented around. My answer is maybe two parts. The first is you have to understand that none of us are big enough to solve this problem on our own, right? So there's not like if you find the perfect task, the perfect project, you have all the skills and you apply yourself to that one thing, the whole market isn't going to change. You know, not even if you're Elon Musk, you can't change these systems, you know, at that level. And so, you know, there will be things that have bigger impacts and lesser impacts, but it's a massively complicated system that needs change every node in the in the network, let's say, you know, so within something like the building environment, you know, we need regulatory change, we need technical change, we need to change consumer attitudes, we need to innovate in the utility space. We need innovation in financial markets. These are all things that we need to have and none of them will drive that change independently. But if we don't have change in all of those areas, it will stop the market transformation from happening. So when you think of it that way, the response is really, it's all pretty important to do. As long as it's all aligned and moving in the same direction, we need people working on all of it. So if you're looking for the most important thing to do, I usually say, you know, what's your aptitude and where's your passion? You know, where within this massively complex thing, are you going to be able to wake up every day and pour your energy into it, be excited about tackling this piece of it and knowing it's having a contribution to this much bigger thing that we're all trying to work on. And, and I mean, that that's it. If you can do that every day and you know you're having an impact, you know, I'd be hard to say there's anything more important you should be doing. Thank you for listening to People Who Perform, the real estate careers podcast brought to you by Highview Partners, a talent search and recruitment firm focused exclusively on Canadian real estate. If your real estate team is looking to find the best next hire, or if you're ready to make the best next move in your career, then reach out to Highview Partners today. Follow us on LinkedIn and visit us at highviewpartners.ca.